chapter 9 of Mark. It would have been one to bring Philip into. It's uh, another roller coaster, but I thought it was uh, appropriate that the text we take today was one that Lucy would come and read as uh, one of our children amongst us reading the text about how we welcome the children amongst us. It seemed far too symbolic to go through the entire chapter, but to just pick out this little nugget and then go through the roller coaster of this chapter and find again something that Mark keeps going back to. This um, series uh, and Mark started with me looking at the minutiae and thinking I could have the stamina of a Martin Lloyd-Jones here and we could take the first six years of my ministry in Fitzroy and do Mark. And then I realized, oh, no, Martin Lloyd-Jones, catch yourself on Stockman, get on with it. And, um, and so it's kind of as we've gone through this, I hope that you see it as clearly as I do, but then I spend most of the week um, thinking about it, that almost in Mark we have taken out a, a thread which is very much one of the key threads in Mark of this journey of discipleship. And in our journey of discipleship, it's come at a time when Mark was writing and about what Jesus had been doing. He was in the midst of a change, a change from Judaism to this new way, this Christian way that's come out of Judaism because of this uh, man, God, Jesus of Nazareth. And we have found ourselves in that journey um, into a new ministry, into a new cultural dispensation in Fitzroy, and we've been tracing different things within these chapters that I think have certainly been helpful for me and I hope are helpful for all of us. The roller coaster ride, which is Mark starts in the mountain of transfiguration and literally, oh, Steve hadn't thought about that when he used the illustration, we come down the hill of the roller coaster off the mountain. And as we come off the mountain in the victory of what the mountain must have been or the amazement of what the mountain must have been for the disciples who were with Jesus in that moment of transfiguration, we do land in the valley with a bump as Jesus starts to look around and call them a faithless generation because they haven't the faith to deal with this demonic uh, child, actually, or young person. As the Father comes, we find these words that I hope uh, echoes round us all when Jesus says, if you believe, and he said, I believe, but help my belief. He wasn't arrogant enough to think that he believed. He did believe, but he still knew there were doubts he still knew that he needed more belief. And then we find ourselves, I suppose, in our journey, as we look at the community of faith that Jesus is building around himself, we find ourselves going further down because we find the disciples beginning to argue about who was the greatest and who was going to be first and all of that kind of stuff. And maybe that came out of the fact that somewhere in transfiguration up on the mountain with Jesus, while others struggled to do Jesus' work off the mountain, and they were beginning to quibble about, a bit like uh, uh, children, I'll not say our children because they don't like us talking about them and our children are perfect, so they never fight, that's the way they would like us to see it. But children who say, oh, I was at the frenzy weekend and you weren't, or I was at the flip side weekend and you weren't. Oh, we climbed a mountain and you didn't. It's that kind of thing that the disciples seem to be doing, and maybe in the light of the childishness of their argument, it's appropriate that Jesus brings a child into their midst at that point as they're talking about who's going to be the greatest. 
Jesus changes the whole perspective and emphasis and focus as he brings a child in that culture the least and talks about them as the ones who are most important. So we're still in this journey of discipleship and change. I think it's interesting too that when the disciples are arguing about who's going to be the greatest, they still haven't got it, have they? Because Jesus, even in the chapter before, and I've juked across, and even in the chapter later, he's still dealing with these things, that as he's told them that he is the one who was first, who had to become the one who was last, so that they who were last could become first, they're still arguing about who's the greatest. They're still, and even though they're arguing about it, when Jesus sort of comes into their space, they kind of go a bit quiet. Because even though they're arguing about who is, they know deep down inside that there's something wrong with that. And Jesus, of course, knows exactly what they've been talking about, and he exposes it and brings it out. But it reminded me of a a song I once heard by a singer called Maria McKee. And she talks about being in the greeting line at the back of the church and the minister saying to her as she shook his hand, I saw you in the communion gulping down the wine. Remember who's beside you when it's no business of mine. How many times have people said, Steve's in the room and we shouldn't say those things or we shouldn't say that word, or maybe we shouldn't tell that joke because Steve's here. Maybe you've experienced it in your own place of work where you're seen as some good living person. We better not say that because they're in the room. It's always good to say, remember who's watching you when it's no business of mine because God as an omnipresent God is there all the time. So why they would stop saying it when there's a human in the room seems to miss the point that whenever they're saying it, God by a spirit is in the room. But Jesus brings these children to him, and he uses them as an illustration of the least. And Lucy read it from verse 37 earlier, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. So as well as welcoming Jesus, They welcome God into their midst if we welcome the children, the least. And there are certainly, and the commentators would very quickly say, there are echoes with Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus said, if you do this to the least of these, the marginalized, the hungry, the thirsty, the ones without a home, then you do it to me. Which always begs the question for me. Here we are on a Sunday morning. Here we are in Fitzroy. Maybe thinking that because we're in Fitzroy, that would be a place to meet God. It's God's meeting house, we would say. It's not the church, because we who've gathered from different parts of Belfast and beyond are the church, but it's a meeting place. And so often you would hear words, well, let me take you to a a place where this became a reality for me. I'm uh, in... And it's going to be, as the, as the month goes on, I'm planning in my blog to do a South African thought every day during the World Cup because South Africa is going to be very much on our minds. So let me take you back to the very first day, way back in July 2000, when I first went on to a township in Cape Town, Kyalitja. And I had 12 students with me. We took hundreds after that, but 12 were the first 12 who were encouraging enough to come with three leaders. 
And I got them onto this township, Kyalitcha, which if you're talking to somebody on the way in on a plane and they're from Cape Town and you say they're going to Kyalitcha, they almost step back from you at that point. And then they say, but you will be taking armoured, you know, tanks with you when you go in. It's not exactly the destination spot of the tourists that are going out for the World Cup. It's well known for its crime. A million people all in these shacks, certainly when we started going. And I can remember standing there in the middle of Kyalitcha with my team and looking around at all these shacks and saying, Lord, why on earth did I do this? I'm petrified. Why did I bring these students to this? Within minutes, certainly half an hour, an hour, I'd fallen in love with the place. And that night we came off the township with all the shacks and poverty. And we find ourselves in Claremont, very close to where Newlands Rugby Stadium is, where the World Cup final was played, was it 1999? Five? Anyway, who's shouting out? Five? Anyway, the World Cup final was played there. It's good to go to Newlands. I watched Tyrone Tyrone High running in a wonderful try at Newlands. Ireland were leading for three minutes. And a bit like the roller coaster in Mark, it went downhill from there. But I remember that transfiguration moment um, when you're in the middle of an Afrikaner crowd and Ireland score. It was gorgeous for just that moment. But anyway, Newlands is there. It's Claremont. It's very middle, if not upper middle class. And we went to this beautiful Methodist church at night and we came in and people were hugging each other and they were glad to see each other. And then the guy who was starting the worship got up and he prayed, Lord, we thank you you're with us tonight. Where two or three are gathered in your name, you're in the midst. How many times do we use that? And I'm not saying it's not right to use it, but that particular day, it jarred with me. Now, unfortunately, as a preacher, I have to listen to all preachers, every word, because it's what I do. And that night, I can safely say, and apologies if you're in the room, But that sermon was the worst sermon I'd ever heard in all my life. But I listened to every word. Nobody else was listening. But I, as a preacher, had to listen to every word because that's what I do. And during it, as I'm listening, there's another part of me, while I'm still listening, thinking, where would Jesus like to meet us most? If you do this to the least of these, you do it to me. If you welcome these, you welcome me. Or where two or three are comfortably gathered, you're in the midst. And I discerned that night that, yes, Jesus is in both places. But really, I found in the ten years since when I went to Kyalitcha or Masapumalele or Imphalene or whatever township I was on, God was always much more delighted to welcome me on the township than he was in the comfort of congregational worship. If you welcome them, you welcome me. If you want to meet Jesus today, find the least of all in Belfast and sit down and have a moment with them. And you will have had a moment with Jesus. It's an incredible challenge. I told this story in City Church a few years ago this girl came up to me after it and she said, I'm from South Africa. And I said, that's great. 
She says, I'm from Cape Town. And I said, that's great. She says, I go to that church. (laughs) And I said, that's not so great. (laughs) But she understood. She understood. And it's interesting, and I've told you this story before as well, that when I was in the Gugaletu Township just a few years ago and I bumped into her, we went into the home of Cindy, a woman with HIV AIDS who had not very long to live. And I tell the story again because actually the Romania team were in our house this week and one of them asked me, what is the moment in all your travels that you will always go back to and remember the most? And it was this moment. Cindy's lying there with maybe, I think they told us, literally weeks after we left, she passed away. And as we're about to leave, Devon, who was an American intern studying at Princeton at the time, said, let us pray for Cindy. And I put my hand down onto Cindy's shoulder as we were praying, and I had been there six weeks, and I was utterly exhausted, and I couldn't wait to get home. But as Devon prayed for Cindy, and as I connected with Cindy, the least of these, the least of these, something happened. And I came out of that place wanting to stay for much longer, re-energized, spiritually alert again. And I couldn't work out what it was. And the next day I was talking to the pastor in Gugaletu and he said to me, he said, Steve, you know, those women that you visited yesterday, they're not going to say white people came to visit. They're going to tell their neighbors God came to visit. And suddenly I realized what it meant in these words of welcoming the least whether it's the children of Mark chapter 9 or whether it's the marginalized of Matthew 25, when we serve as feebly as we try to serve, as I reached out trying to serve Cindy, I met God in the least. And God ministered to me. And that's where we're going to find him. That's where we're going to find the strongest, most potent way to learn about and to grow in this faith when we do this to the least of these, when we welcome them in. It's interesting here that it's also children. Some of the commentators have taken that up, and it's interesting listening to Michael's prayer this morning and praying with Michael as well, as we think about a government trying to change the world, as we think about a government trying to stay together probably initially, and then trying to change the world, as we think about someone who's just left power, who did want to do something, and we ask, how can they find the secret of government? And how can they find the secret of change? How can they look after the vulnerable children of our world? Children abused in their family. Children who are dying today because they don't have the medicine that we would just go down the street for. Children who are left out of our thinking as we go about our everyday lives. If we considered these children, if we considered the least of these children, And we started to live our lives in a way that had them the focus of our attention rather than us as the focus of our attention. We would start to change the world. Jesus said to them, if you want to be great, you've got to become last and serve. 
And as one commentator put it, every economic problem would be solved if people lived for what they could do for others and not for what they could get for themselves. Every political problem would be solved if human ambition was only to serve the state and not to enhance individual prestige. The divisions and disputes which tear the church asunder would be for most part never occur if our only desire of the office bearers and the members was to serve it without caring about the position they occupied. When Jesus spoke of the supreme greatness and value of the one whose ambition was to be a servant, he laid down one of the greatest practical truths in the world. One of the greatest practical truths in the world is that we were made not to serve ourselves, not for our position in society, but to serve one another. I thought it was interesting this week, I listened to Gordon Brown in that very moving farewell speech. And he did say that he didn't seek the trappings of being a prime minister. But somehow in a Presbyterian manse when he was young, he wanted to do something for other people. And I think it will be interesting if he does what he says he's going to do and goes off and does charitable work for 10 years and we'll all be going, wish we had him as prime minister now. It'll be interesting to see who the real Gordon Brown might turn out to be. But he didn't want the trappings. He didn't want the position. He wanted to serve. I bumped into the moderator-elect the very next day, and he was going off to meet Prince Charles. And then he was saying he was coming here on Friday night to get a doctorate. And he said to me, as only Norman Hamilton can say, I really don't like all that stuff. I'm really not going to enjoy that at all. I don't want doctorates, and I don't want frills, and I don't want all those. Right, Reverend, he said. I mean, what doctor, right, doctor, Reverend? He couldn't even get the words. He said, I just don't want that. It's not me. And I thought, there's two people who want to serve, but they don't need the prestige and positions. They just want to serve. And so if I could finish once more in South Africa. In 2004, when we were there, we listened to all these people talking about reconciliation. And we kept asking ministers and politicians and just people we met, how did you overcome those huge barriers. Now, it's not all sorted out, but they seemed at that stage at least, and maybe today, further down the road than we were then. And this word kept coming back. Ubuntu. Ubuntu. And every time we heard it, somebody would give us a different definition. In somebody else, you become yourself. You can't be you without another person. You find yourself in... And we took down all these quotations of what it might be. But the basis of it, or the essence of it, is actually, done it two weeks in a row, I think, in a U2 song that says, All because of you, I am. The idea in the South African psyche, in the black tribal South African psyche, is this. That I cannot be who I am without you. It's impossible to be the fullness of my humanity without the connections I have with you. And so as a Balamina Presbyterian, I had to go through the theology of that. Could there be something biblical in there, I thought? And it's here. It's 
the disciples being told, you cannot be who you were meant to be unless you serve one another, unless you belong to one another. And that's what I was sharing with the session in the opening devotions at the last session meeting. Romans chapter 12 says, we belong to one another. When we start to serve one another and realize that the fullness of who we are is found in how much we serve one another, then we find out the essence of our humanity. We find out who this Jesus is, and we begin to follow him. And as we serve, we learn. And as we serve, we grow. But if we wait to be served, then we're going to be stunted. So these children, or this child, brought before Jesus, after they're arguing about who was the greatest. The next chapter, just to give you a peek, the rich young ruler, how important he is. And he also comes alongside, bring the children into my presence. Jesus seems to be showing them that the ways of the world is power and prestige, and if you don't mind me saying it, membership of the local golf club, which in today's society seems to be the closest we have to the pharisaical society. Wear this. I haven't played for eight years because I can get married in jeans. I can baptize Connor in jeans. I can marry people in jeans. I can do funeral in jeans. But don't dare try to play golf in jeans. When we put ourselves above others and we want to say that we are better than others because of our very dress code, we find Jesus coming to smash into it and say, no, 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 no. no." Putting yourself below others is where you're going to find yourself and the greatness of the kingdom of God. Let us pray. Our God, this is tough stuff. And we understand why the disciples weren't getting it because our natural inclination is to find ourselves a place. Our natural inclination is to seek some kind of prestige. We want to be significant, and we want to find that significance in our own way and with our own control. Lord, we thank you that you want to give us a place, and that you want to give us significance but it's the opposite of the world's view of place and significance. And so we pray today as we see a child unable to articulate faith, coming to the sacrament of baptism where we welcome into the church not by his articulation of faith or by any works that he has done, but simply by a symbol of your grace so we would become like little Connor. And that we would see that we need to welcome the least amongst us. And not just welcome them, but serve them. And not just serve them from a place of domination, but serve them when we see them as more important even than ourselves. That in that, that upside-down kingdom, that antithesis of how the world sees it, 
we will find our spiritual place, and we will find what you define as greatness in the kingdom of God. Lord, teach us it every day. Lord, help us to meditate upon it, and give us that incredible strength to challenge the ways of the world around us, to live the ways of your Son, in whose worthy name we pray. Amen.